0: Rebecca Connor. Thank you. Wow. All right, I'll just get myself organised. Now, some of you have done college. Some of you are doing college. So some of this will be a little bit of either revision or you're about to hear it twice because we're about to do it next semester. So you'll be fine. Um, For everyone else, um, hi. (laughs) So um, Dave was saying about Um, me being a teacher of the word and that is my favorite thing to do is just to open up the Bible and teach the word of God. Having said that I'm not really doing that tonight. I will be doing that next week and the following week. Today we're going to be talking um, just more laying the foundations of some history and stuff. So please forgive me there won't be much scripture tonight but I promise scripture is coming if that's very important to you which it is important to me so that's cool. So I want to start Um, by just playing a video. if Jen, if you've got that ready back there, it's just a couple of minutes. I think you'll uh, enjoy this or not.
1: There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression?
2: I I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think
1: uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences.
2: I think people definitely should have the ability to
1: go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. If I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, (laughs) why? Really?
0: I don't have a problem with it.
1: I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are.
2: <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor.
1: I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion, and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions, just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately.
2: Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay. He wants to say seven years old.
1: If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. So if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to?
2: Uh, Probably not, I guess. I mean unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now.
1: If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? (laughs) Because you're not. (laughs) No, I don't think you're
2: 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine
1: if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. (laughs) So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I
2: don't think that you are.
1: I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries.
2: No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything.
1: So, I can be a Chinese woman. You. (laughs) Um. Sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult?
0: Hey, (laughs) Um, you know, there's a there's a line in um, the Gospels when Pilate is talking to Jesus, and he he just sort of has this moment where, and Pilate goes, "What is truth?" And I think we're back at that same spot where people are going, "I don't know what truth is," and the reality is that the gap between biblical Christianity and the culture within our society is widening, and it's forcing us to choose as Christians it's forcing us to choose you know is is Jesus Lord or is our culture Lord we're all Peter in the Bible you all know Peter the disciple we are all Peter the question is are we going to be Peter on the night of Jesus betrayal fearfully denying Christ to a servant girl or are we going to be Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaiming Christ in the face of persecution See, for so long in the West, we could live our Christianity without being challenged and without offending people who don't believe what we believe. But this is actually getting harder and harder. And so while we try to work out how to live our faith in this new world, massive and momentous events are happening very rapidly across our Western world. The Western world's at a crossroads and the reality is so many Christians Because in the future of the world and in the future of our hearts, what role will our faith actually play? See, the struggle is for the soul of the West. And the struggle is going to shape what our world looks like in the future. And if anti-Christian forces prevail, we're going to see, and we already are seeing to some extent, a return to the philosophy and the ethics and the lifestyle of the pagan world of the early church time. It's going back to what it was. This is not new. This is ancient. But the predominantly Christian world that we've known for centuries is is almost gone. And so the challenge that we're facing today is the same challenge that the persecuted church faced in the Roman Empire for those first 300 years after Christ. The diversity of values, the diversity of belief, the diversity of ideology that we see now has not been seen in the Western world since the Roman Empire. And we've got to decide what does it look like to be a faithful Christian in this new world. See, persecuted Christians have stood strong for their faith for the past 2,000 years. But for us in the West, the danger we face isn't martyrdom, it's comfort. The threat to our faith is not persecution, it's the seductive temptation of an easy life, wanting to fly under the radar and be liked. And the world is saying that the time for Christians is over, that we're fighting a losing battle, that Christianity is outdated, our day is done, that our beliefs beliefs just reveal our bigotry, (laughs) and that we're on the wrong side of history. Our task may literally be To stand against the world for the sake of the world. The Western world is actually in the process of of cutting off its roots. But when you have a look at a bunch of flowers, you cut off the roots, you put them in a vase, those flowers are doomed to die, right? Imagine this. Imagine a 20-story building. Each story represents one century, 20 centuries since Christ and you've got this 20th century building, a 20-story building built on the foundation of judeo-christian everything, values. And then we decide to remove that foundation. What happens to the building? Right? So when the west loses its judeo-christian foundation, it loses its soul. It no longer lives according to any values or ideals, and what it does is it creates a crisis of cultural authority. In other words, the beliefs and the ideals that once inspired and undergirded the West are now being rejected by the very people who live in the blessing of the society created by those values and ideals. I want to say that again. The beliefs and ideals that once inspired and undergirded the West are now being rejected by the people who live in the blessing of the society created by those values and ideals. One of the many consequences of these trends is that the prevailing attitude in the West among the intellectuals or the elites or the power brokers or whatever you want to call them is literally ABC, anything but Christianity. Any wild and wacky concept, yeah, bring it on, except anything Judeo-Christian. And as Christians, we actually can't close our eyes to this. I'm going to go into a whole bunch of things next week, which may be a little bit shocking, actually, the stuff that is being... Um, proclaimed as good. (laughs) We can't close our eyes to it, but at the same time, we can't use it as an excuse. We can't use it as an excuse on the one hand to be reactionary and like Peter in the garden go and hack off the, the guy's ear, right? But also we don't want to use it as an excuse to play the victim and be Peter in the courtyard denying Christ, okay? Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And so we've got to respond, but we've got to respond the way that God wants us to respond, And that's what I want to talk about these next three weeks. So looking at the word, looking at the world and looking at worldviews, we're going to ask three questions. And the first question is this, how do we get here? How do we get here? (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to take a bit of a flyover look at the development of worldviews over the past couple of centuries. If you hate history, too bad, we go on there. We're going to look at how do we get to this point? What brought us to this point? The second thing we're going to look at is what's changed. I don't know if you've noticed but over the past 5 to 10 years everything seems to have shifted. The unthinkable 5 years ago is now the norm and the norm of 5 years ago is now unthinkable. Why the change? What's shifted in the in the present? What's shifted in this last 5 to 10 years that's just changed everything? So that's number 2 and number 3 is what's the answer? What can we do as Christians? We're not going to get depressed. We're not going to whinge about how tough things are for Christians. We're going to be the church that Jesus called us to be. And we're going to have the impact on society he's called us to have. So that's one, two, and three is going to be week one, two, and three. So today we're going to look at, and hopefully I'll get through it all tonight. I'm not sure. We'll see how we go. Tonight we're going to look at week one, how did we get here? I want to show you one more video just for fun. I apologize. It's a little, there's a couple of, it's a little bit, a couple of times my apologies
2: what's up guys this is will Witt with PragerU. you today we're in echo park where we have a petition to stop the killing of eagles stop the destruction of eagle eggs but then we're asking them to sign a petition to stop the killing of babies Let's see how it goes we have a petition to stop the killing of eagles like eagle eggs you know people disturb them or they destroy them these eagles haven't been born yet like they've rights you know everything yeah. like we don't we don't think that they should be harmed or there should be harsher penalties for those kind of things. Would you yes. guys agree? Huh? Yeah. Awesome. If you guys agree, we have a pen right here.
0: Yeah, of course. Awesome. Don't kill eagles.
2: Yeah, don't kill eagles, right? Eagles what have rights heck? too. <laughs>
0: so here's a pen. Eagles are people too.
2: Yeah, eagles are people too. So
0: it's signed, printed, I signed That's fine. it. It's, it's fine. fine. Don't
2: worry about it. Yeah, double signature is fine. I had
0: like three white claws today. Oh my
2: god, how fun! Perfect. All right, now you sign it. And So I didn't know if you guys would want to yeah, sign this for sure. Yeah, definitely.
1: Best of luck. I hope you save the eagles. Thank you. Thank
2: you so much. And we actually, let me just talk to you real quick. We have one other petition about stopping the killing of humans too. Oh my god. Like babies. Stop the killing of babies. <gasps> I hate like killing you, of babies. Right? Like you hate, you hate abortion? We want to protect their rights too, even though being like unborn. Wait, so I know no, if you would want to. I wanna...
1: don't agree with that.
2: You don't agree with that? No,
1: I'm like I, I'm pro-abortion. Sorry.
2: Oh, fair enough. Why? Why do you? <laughs>
1: is, this, is this awkward now? Oh no, like, I don't agree. You don't agree? I uh, fully support abortion.
2: Why do you support not the killing of unborn eagles, but the killing of unborn children? Um, I think it's the mother's decision. I feel like anyone can make their own decision decision about their body I think because there's specific like
0: uh, rape isn't considered when you're talking of, like e- eagles aren't raped
2: that's I think that's true
0: a human woman should have more rights probably
1: than a bald eagle yeah
2: okay a- abortion thanks <laughs> but she babies are her. gross see babies are gross yes well it is like you know what it does to your body you're not a woman so you'd have no idea there's precautions against that. There are, Yeah, there 2019, are. take birth control, use condoms.
0: Yeah, a lot of things get overlooked when we're talking about people because we have consciousness.
2: Yeah, consciousness. fair enough. Do eagles have consciousness?
0: I don't know, I've never talked to an eagle. That's fair. I don't think eagles have a lot of opinions.
2: I don't think so either. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right guys, so we just finished up here and we found that a lot of the people who we talked to at the beginning of our interview with them didn't really like us at the end of our interview with them. Which is okay. Got some good educational stuff. And we appreciate you guys tuning in. Like this video. Comment on it. Share this video with your friends. And if you're on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell button to never miss one of our videos. Thanks, guys. Peace.
0: If I want to have a baby in like 10 years when I act like fall in love or whatever. um, Like
2: maybe, yes, I would want one baby. But I would never have more than one because I feel like that's f***ed up. Because of climate change?
0: Yeah. Like we're all going to die soon. How did we get there? Where it... At- eagle egg is worth more than a baby so that's what we're looking at tonight how did we get here so we're going to look at worldviews I know that was funny and confronting all at the same time right oh my gosh anyway so if we're going to talk about worldviews the first thing we need to do before we dive in is figure out what the heck are we talking about when we talk about worldviews right Um, An easy definition of worldview is in the name, right? It's my worldview. It's how I see the world, right? But it actually gets a bit tricky because how we think we see the world um, could be this, but our actions and our behaviors or our speech might actually reveal that our true worldview is actually this, right? So I'm going to put it this way. A worldview is like a fundamental orientation of your heart. In other words, it's the picture you carry in your heart of how the world is, And that picture you carry or that story you carry in your heart of how the world is shapes how you think, shapes what you believe, shapes what you say and how you act. Your worldview determines your answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Your worldview could be true, could be partially true, could be complete garbage. Your worldview could be consistent or it could be inconsistent. It could be conscious, could be subconscious. It could change. You may have thought it through. You may have never considered it, but it's there, you hold it, and it defines how you live. Your worldview is the way you see life that dictates the way you live. So before I dive into these different Western worldviews and the history behind them, um, we need to kind of figure out, okay, well, how do we define them? Okay, I can talk you through different worldviews, but there's actually a really methodical way to um, evaluate and understand different worldviews. So I'm going to talk about that. There are, before we go any further, these are the three books that I've pretty much used, I'll be using for the next three weeks. Um, the first one that I'm talking from today is called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. This is um, probably the first great worldviews book. It's a classic that everything else sort of stems off. And um, the eight questions I'm about to go through with you come from this book. It's, it's a heavy read. so It's, it's intellectual, but it's good. Um, the second one is hidden worldviews, which are cultural worldviews you have when you don't know you have them, right? So you may think you're a great Christian theist, but then this shows there's a whole lot of other things going on behind the scenes. This is actually based off James Sire's book, so they work together really, really well. And the third book, which I'll be um, looking at next week and the week after, is called Impossible People by Os Guinness. Um, this one literally changed my life. This is phenomenal, and I'll be teaching a lot from that in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to have a look at them afterwards, feel free if you want to read. If you don't, just listen to me. <laughs> cool. So to try and understand the different worldviews, there's eight questions that you go through and you ask each time when you look at different worldviews, and it helps you get a picture of what that worldview is all about, all right? So I'm going to just tell you these eight questions, and then we're going to refer back to them as we go through the first question is, what is prime reality? Now that's just scholarly speak for basically asking, what is the source of everything else? What's the, what's the first thing that everything else comes from? The prime reality. So your answer, I'm assuming if you're in this room, is going to be God, right? But other, some, someone else might answer the universe. Someone else might answer matter. Someone else might answer gods and goddesses or the spirit realm or whatever. What is the thing that is the prime reality in your worldview? And this is the question is that, that's the foundation for all the other questions. So once you answer question one, all the other questions sort of just line up based on what your question is for number what your answer is for number one. And this will become more clear as I go through. So that was question number one. Question number two is What is the nature of external reality? In other words, what's the nature of the the world around us, the universe, the things that we can see, the world we live on, the the solar system we're in, the universe, all right? Is it created? Is it self-existent? Is it eternal? Is it matter? Is it illusion? Question number three, what is a human being? So you can see we've started really big, God and the universe, and now we're coming into humans and human experience, all right? What is a human? Are we just an organic machine, dictated to by our biology? Are we gods or goddesses? Are we people made in the image of God? Question four is, what happens to a person at death? Reincarnation, personal extinction, it's all over, pushing up daisies, heaven or hell. What happens at that point? Question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? That's a funny question. What it means is, why are we different from animals? Like we've got consciousness, we've got language, we've got dreams and desires, we fall in love, we've got creativity. It distinguishes us from the animals. Is this the result of just millions of years of evolution? Or are we created in the image of an all-knowing God? Or is this an illusion? We'll get to that later. Question six, how do we know what is right and wrong? Is that just determined by our cultural traditions? Is it a social construct? Are there no moral absolutes and we just get to decide for ourselves? Are we created in the image of God and therefore He decides what's right and wrong? Question seven, what is the meaning of human history? Is there meaning or is everything meaningless? Is everything random? Is history outworking the purposes of God? So those seven questions will help us understand the different worldviews we're going to go through. Question eight, though, is different. Question eight is about how... My worldview is outworked in my life. So there can be two people that hold the same worldviews and would answer the same from questions one to seven. But when it comes to question eight, it's like, okay, well, how does it affect me? That's question eight. Question eight is what personal life-orientating sorry, commitments are consistent with this worldview? In other words, so what? How does it affect my life and how I live? And so these are the eight questions that we're going to use to examine and understand these different worldviews. Does that make sense? Everyone with me still? Yes, okay, cool. It's really important before we even start off to realize that you don't think your way into a worldview. You experience your way in, okay? So your worldview actually comes from your story. Now, when I say story, I don't mean made-up story. I mean the story of you, okay? Your experience of life, not rational thought. And your worldview will change over time as you experience different things. But what we need to understand, it's like a an onion that radiates out. All right, your story is at the core, and your story shapes your identity. So your identity comes from your story of who you are, your experience of your life shapes your identity. Now that's very interesting when we live in a world that has a lot of identity confusion. Okay, your identity will then form the basis of your convictions. Your convictions then shape your ethics and your values, and your ethics and values dictate your actions. So what everyone else sees is the actions, that it see all the other layers underneath that actually come from your story. And so your actions are the outworking of the story. And this is why educating people on the dangers of binge drinking, for example, never works. Oh, we just need to educate people not to binge drink. It's not going to work because you're trying to talk to up here. We need to change the fundamental story in their heart so they no longer want to binge drink, right? It's the same thing with the, um, the rape culture. The, you hear the media talk about rape culture, Rape. Right? We've got to um, educate men not to rape. Despite what the media, darlings, say, it's nothing about education. It's a heart transformation that changes the fundamental picture of their heart then is outworked in a change of behaviour. It's always about the transformation of a heart. Education is just knowledge. It doesn't change who we are and how we behave. The last two questions before we dive in is to evaluate the different worldviews. So we've got our eight questions to understand worldviews, but we have to then go, okay, well, is this a good worldview? Should I base my life on this or is this a load of crap? The two questions you want to ask is, number one, is it consistent? To be able to live it, it has to be consistent. I'll give you a hint, a little bit of a spoiler alert for later. Most of them are not consistent. And the second question is, if I actually live out the convictions of this worldview, worldview, is it beneficial? Is it helpful? And we're going to come back to these questions as we go through. All right. So what are these worldviews? The first worldview we're going to look at tonight is called Christian theism. You'd know it as Christianity, but the technical word is Christian theism. And in the West, this was the predominant worldview for centuries, like centuries, all right? All the other Western worldviews actually came about as people began to step away from Christian theism. So we're going to start there because that is the, that's the starting point. All right? Now Christianity had so infused the Western world that whether people were actually Christians or not, they lived in a culture that existed within the context of Christianity. And their basis of right and wrong or good and evil was in the context of Christian theism, even if they themselves had rejected God. Does that make sense? So they thought and they lived and they existed in this Christian context, even if they were like, oh, yeah, I've rejected God. But they understand that they rejected God. So let's ask our eight questions. Number one, what is prime reality? What's the source of everything else? Anyone want to take a guess? God, yes. Well done. (laughs) Um, But it's not just God. And I'm going to expand on this and you'll see why in a minute. Prime reality is the infinite personal God revealed in the Bible. God is triune. He's transcendent. He's imminent. I'll explain these words in a second. He's omniscient, sovereign, and good. So what that means is he is infinite and yet he's personal. That's amazing. He's transcendent. Transcendent means he's beyond us. He's bigger than everything. He's so far beyond And yet he's imminent. Imminent means he's with us and he's close to us. He knows everything. Nothing is out of his control and he is good. That is a key statement. He's not disinterested. He's not distant. He's not uncaring. He is good and he does good. And that's really, really important because everything else about this worldview comes from our understanding of prime reality, God. So that's question number one. Question number two was, what is the nature of external reality? So for Christian theism, we answer that by saying external reality is the universe that God created ex nihilo, which is just Latin for out of nothing. He created the universe out of nothing. I love that. Now, this universe has order and structure. Sorry. The system is open. So it's ordered and structured means there's laws. There's laws of physics. There's laws of gravity. There's mathematical laws. There's... Laws that govern the universe we live in, but also the system is open. What that means is God can move in the system through, through the miraculous and our actions also have an impact on the world around us. So it's an open system in that sense. There is cause and effect, and we can be sometimes the cause bringing about an effect in, our, in this world. Question three, what is a human being? Human beings are created in the image of God with personality, creativity, Intelligence, etc. <laughs> However, at the fall, that was broken. We were created in the image of God, but at the fall, that image was broken. And then through the work of Jesus, we're redeemed and restored. What we have to understand at this point, this is this becomes a really important thing as we look at the other worldviews. Christian theism gives dignity to humanity. We've got purpose, we've got worth, we are loved, and we are valuable. Now remember that because it becomes rare as we look at the other worldviews. And as you see that becomes rare, you'll realize you'll begin to understand how that is actually affecting our society today as we've moved away from this Christian theistic worldview. Question four, what happens to a person at death? Death is either the gate to eternity with God in heaven or the gate to eternal separation from Him. Question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? God has actually built into humanity the ability and the capacity to learn and to think and to create and to communicate. Human knowledge exists because we were created in the image of God. I'll put it this way. Because He is the all-knowing knower of all things, we can be the sometimes knowings, knowers of some things. Right? <laughs> you don't want me to say that again? <laughs> because He's the all-knowing knower of all things, We can be the sometimes knowing knowers of some things, right? We have the ability to learn because He put it in us because it's a characteristic of Him. We're made in His image, all right? Question six, how do we know what is right and wrong? Well, God defines right and wrong in His Word and He's placed an innate sense of morality within us. Now, this has been distorted because of the fall. So on the one hand, you have kids that instinctively know what's right and wrong. But on the other hand, you have the same kid doing the wrong thing, knowing it's wrong. Okay. So it's in us, but it's a bit broken. There are moral absolutes. That's also a key statement to remember later on. There are moral absolutes. There is right and wrong based on standards that line up with God's character and are revealed in his word. Question seven. What is the meaning of human history? Really simple. History is a meaningful series of events that lead to the fulfillment of God's purposes. His way will prevail in the end. And question eight, what personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? In other words, so what? What does it mean for me? The answer is literally that we live to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, Anyone who's raised in more traditional churches, the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that. Glorify him and enjoy him. That's a great combo. So this was the dominant Western worldview for literally centuries. And then things started to shift. In the 17th century came the age of reason or the age of enlightenment. And what happened is the superstition of the past was abandoned because science began to flourish. People were encouraged to learn. They are encouraged to think for themselves. They are encouraged to read. They are encouraged to use reason and intellect to observe the world around them. The laws of physics and chemistry and biology and maths began to make sense of the world. And this was a good thing, right? I'm not saying this is bad. This is a good thing. Um, the superstition and the priestly control and the lack of understanding had literally imprisoned people in poverty and in fear for too long. So this was a good thing. And actually, despite what you may hear, this was actually led by Christians. A lot of them were Christians, especially the scientists, the early scientists. A lot of them were Christians. It's quite incredible. They led the charge. However, because humans are involved, we always stuff it up, right? And so over time, this new doctrine began to shift. So there was this new doctrine of the necessity of reason. Okay, I need to use reason and logic. It began to, to morph into a belief of the sufficiency of reason. I'll put it this way. People's minds, mindsets went from I need to use my brain to my brain is all I need to use. If I can think it, I can work it out. At this point, they stopped believing in miracles. They stopped believing in God who was involved in our lives because if they couldn't see it and observe it and measure it and understand it, they rejected it. And so even though it was a good thing that began to happen where people's intellect came alive and they, learned, they started to learn and science and all that stuff started to flourish, it was a great thing, but we took it too far and we decided that we knew everything. And this was the first step Away from God. Remember, I said every worldview takes a step from God. So if we have Christian theism here and this is focused on God, deism, which is our second worldview, was just one step across. And in deism, no, we'll go to the questions. So, question one to understand deism what is prime reality? What's the source of everything? The answer for deists is that God is the first cause. It's the phrase I'd use, the first cause. What that means is he created the universe and then left it to run on its own. Hands off. He's not personal. He's not close. He's not triune. God is distant. He's not involved in our world. He is simply the creator. And we should worship him as God, as the creator, but nothing more. He's not interested in relationship at this point. So you see how when we were doing Christian theism, The the answer to question one, you couldn't just say God, because we still have God here, but something has shifted. See that? So question number two, what is the nature of external reality? Well, external reality is the universe that God created, ex nihilo, in a closed system. So now the universe has order and structure, but it's closed. God doesn't do miracles in this universe. It's the concept of the clockwork universe. So if you imagine the universe like a clock, an old-fashioned alarm clock, not like a digital one. <laughs> it doesn't work. Where well, God's created this clock, wound it up, stepped back, and it's just going to run its course. It's just going to do its thing. It's the clockwork universe. Question three, what is a human being? Well, human beings are created by God, but they're part of the clockwork. We have value... Because we have the ability to reason and think. Remember, the deists were all about logic and reasoning and intellect. So our value comes because we're the only animals able to reason and to think and to use logic. You may have heard of Descartes. He said, I think, therefore I am. It's that. It's the the almost idolization of our thought process and our intellect. Now, here's where we come to our first contradiction. Remember I said... When we are evaluating worldviews, question number one is, is it consistent? Here we have our first inconsistency. Deists believe that we're personal and we think and we reason and we have dreams and desires and intellect and logic and communication and language. And yet they want us to believe that all of these aspects of who we are were created by a God who has none of those. So God without personality, a God who doesn't reason or communicate or have dreams or desires, created us with all of those things. That's inconsistent. It's illogical. Okay, question number four. What happens to a person at death? Well, some deists believe in an afterlife where good people go to heaven. Some deists believe there's no afterlife, that we just have this life and that's it. And so there's a bit of variety there. Question five. Why is it possible to know anything at all? Well, again, this is what deists love, the knowledge thing. Okay, we're all about the knowledge. And so the answer to that question is, through our ability to reason, because we've got great minds and great intellects, plus the methods of science, we can learn about the universe. That's it, full stop. There's no revelation from God. He doesn't speak to us. It's all what I can observe and what I can see. It's all the scientific methods that I can work out. Again, We've got, a, we've got an inconsistency here because now suddenly we're the ones who are able to communicate knowledge and learn and yet we were created by a God who has none of those aspects of his personality. Question six, how do we know what's right and wrong? The answer for deus is that ethics are intuitive. They're just built into us. We just know what's right and wrong. In the deus thinking, there's no fall. There was no Adam and Eve sin and that that broke part of us. That didn't happen. We, humans, and the world are as we were created to be. And so we know what's right and wrong just intuitively, allegedly. Question seven, what is the meaning of human history? History for the deist is a meaningless series of events. There's no bigger purpose because we've got the clockwork God, right? He's not actually involved. He's wound up the clock and he's stepped back. So it's just a series of events. It's whatever happens, happens. Everything just is. There's no meaning to history. Interestingly enough, when you look at the great deist thinkers of the time, Benjamin Franklin and a few of the others of that, of that era, they were absolutely fascinated by the significance of events in human history. And yet their worldview says that there shouldn't be any significance in the events of human history. So again, there's a little bit of a contradiction there where it's just not quite fitting right. Number eight. And this is the one that always reveals the heart of it. What personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? The answer for the deist is you get to decide. We love that. In modern deism, there's actually a spectrum from cold to warm. Now, if you've got a warm, a co- we'll, do, we'll do cold deists first. And this will help me explain the you get to decide. But cold deists see God as like a force out there. Okay, he's like an abstract force and he kicked off the creation process, maybe by the Big Bang or whatever, and then it evolved from there, right? Just left it to do its thing. There's not likely to be an afterlife, but if it does exist, you'll get in if you're good. It's kind of that. It's very, it's very cold and impersonal. Then you've got warm ass on this side and they are a bit closer to God. They see God as personal and friendly, kind of like your benevolent Santa Claus. Okay, you don't have to get to know him, but he loves everyone. Um, warm deists go, okay, God created the world and he's kind of watching over us. Uh, God just wants people to be kind to each other. This is this sounding a bit familiar? The central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. That's what God wants. God doesn't need to be involved in your life. Oh, unless you need help, then you can ask God, right? And good people go to heaven when they die. Sound familiar? It actually scares me how many people who call themselves Christians are actually just warm deists. In reality, the way they live their lives. Because, come back to question eight, what personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? You get to choose. The thing that we always want to do is we always want to put ourselves in the place of God where we get to choose. The God of deism is the God that we don't really need. He's the God who we can ignore. He's the God who doesn't have feelings or emotions. Is just kind of a force or an energy or Santa Claus. This worldview is riddled with contradictions and inconsistencies. And people could see that. And see, what happens is if you've got Christian theism here and people go, oh, yeah, but I don't want that. I don't want to be accountable to God. I don't want to have to answer to him. I don't want to live the way he wants me to live. And I'm just going to take one step. Still believe in God. Just one step. Just one step. But there's inconsistencies as soon as you get to this one step and you go, oh, now what do I do? Inconsistencies, how do, I, how do I live with this? Do I want to go back to... No, I don't want that. Nope, nope. Accountability. Nope. Okay. So what then happens is when God is reduced to what we imagine him to be, pretty soon we begin to... I'll say that again. When God is reduced to what we imagine him to be, pretty soon we begin to imagine that he exists only in our imagination. And when we reduce him to a figment of our imagination, he disappears altogether which leads us to the next worldview, which is called naturalism. See, deism is the bridge that takes you from Christian theism to naturalism. It's the natural progression. So where theism believes in a personal, omnipresent, transcendent, loving God, and deism believes in a created God with no interest in his creation, naturalism believes there is no God. Naturalism is atheistic. So again, let's look at our eight questions. This is going to help us understand this worldview. Question one, what is prime reality? We've rejected God. God's not the answer to this one. The answer is matter, like matter. Matter exists eternally and is all there is because God does not exist. Thus, science becomes religion. The belief is that there was nothing. No time, no space, no nothing. And then in a single moment, there was what they call a singularity. And the singularity occurred in which suddenly space and time and temperature and pressure came together that didn't exist two seconds ago. And the result was the universe. And from that moment, the universe existed and became eternal, or maybe a better word, everlasting. In other words, the universe replaces God. So that's our answer to question number one. Prime reality is the universe. It's matter. It's physical matter. Question two, what is the nature of external reality? Well, external reality is now basically our prime reality. And the universe exists in this closed system bound by cause and effect. Miracles are impossible because there is no supernatural. There is no God. There are no miracles. Question three, what is a human being? Well, in a world, in a, in a universe where there is no God, there's no creator. There is only matter. Matter means that human beings are complex machines my personality is determined by my dna my chemical makeup so my value as a human being comes because i'm more highly evolved than the other animals that's the only thing that distinguishes us from other animals we're more highly evolved and that's where i get my value from question four what happens to a person at death nothing death is personal extinction Question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? Well, through our ability to reason. We've got logic, we've got intelligence, we've got science, we can learn about the universe. Where did that come from? That came from evolution. Our ability to reason came about through the process of evolution. And again, that's what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. That's what gives us value. Question six, how do we know what is right and wrong? In naturalism, ethics, right and wrong, only exists whoop, thanks, Kel, within human consciousness. <laughs> there we go. In naturalism, ethics exists only within human consciousness. What that means is ethics are situational. Um, I decide what's right and wrong, and common sense will help me make the right decision. Problem with that, common sense varies very widely across different cultures and between different people, right? There is actually no consistent standard for right and wrong. So that's all very well in theory to go, oh, situational ethics, or we'll just know what's right and wrong. There's no universal standard. And so there's a whole lot of variety um, of what people believe is right and wrong. Question seven, what is the meaning of human history? History is a meaningless sequence of events. There's two types of history in naturalism. The, one is, the first type is natural history. This is the history of the universe. The universe created itself. The second type is human history, which is grounded in evolution. Everything comes from there. But it's important to understand there is no higher purpose or meaning to history. It's just random events. So question eight, what personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? Once again, you get to choose. So so convenient, isn't it? We get to choose. What does it mean to me? Whatever. What does it mean to you? Whatever you want. So here's the big contradiction of naturalism. And this big contradiction, there's two of them that I'm going to tell you about, which are the ones that actually make people reject naturalism and take their next step. The big contradiction first of naturalism is that naturalism believes that humans have value, but on what grounds? When you think about it logically, what is there in naturalism that gives humans intrinsic value? If we are just the, the, are just the result of random chance molecules, then how can we have any v- value as a being? There's nothing that makes me better than anything else. I just happened to randomly evolve more than the other thing. So therefore, where is my value? I have none if I think about it logically. So that's contradiction number one. The second part of this that goes along the same thing is, if I am what naturalism says I am, which is just a bunch of molecules and a bunch of chemicals, if I'm simply a machine that thinks, who am I to trust my thinking? Um, Anyone seen The Truman Show? It's a really old movie now, but yeah, I've got some of you, others have no idea. Okay, in the Truman Show, it's, um, what's his name? Jim Carrey, thank you. He's in, a, he's in a reality TV show. This is before the days of reality TV shows. But he's been in this reality TV show his entire life, since he was born. So he doesn't know. Everyone else knows. They're watching him 24 hours a day and have been since he was a baby. But he doesn't know. He thinks his parents are his parents, but they're actually just his TV parents. He thinks his wife is his wife, but she's just his TV wife. He has no idea. The reason he has no idea is because he is in the system. By the same token, if we are simply machines that think inside this natural system, if we're in the system, how do we know we're in the system if the system is all we know? We could think something that makes complete sense to our rational mind, but if we're just a molecular machine, how do we even know that what we think is correct? If we're going to lean on science, because science is our religion with this worldview, but science is dependent on my brain working it out, but my brain is just some molecules, how do I trust my brain is getting it right? And these two big contradictions start this spiral. If I'm a molecular machine, how can I have value? If I'm a molecular machine, how can I trust my thinking? And this begins to Spiral. And what happens, naturalism, if we attempt to live it consistently, will actually lead to a crisis of self-worth and a crisis of identity. In other words, naturalism leads to our next worldview, which is nihilism. So we started off, remember, with Christian theism. People didn't like Christian theism because it was too accountable that's probably the best word i can find we don't like answering to god we like to be our own gods and so we just took one little step over here going okay we'll still have all the advantages of god but without any responsibility back to god we had deism but then after a while we're like well deism doesn't really do it for me anymore and who is this god and i kind of feel lonely i'm not really up for this so don't want to go back there we'll go one more step there is no god i don't want god there is no god he doesn't exist and then you start to have this thing going okay well all that exists is just random chance. It's just matter. It's just molecules. But me, I have value. Well, how do I know I have value? I don't know. How do I know I have value? And that leads us to nihilism. So nihilism is the denial of any worldview. Nihilism is, a de- is the denial that any knowledge is even possible. Nihilism is a denial that anything has value. In nihilism, now if you are wondering how to spell it, it's N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. In nihilism, nothing has meaning. No statement is valid, including the statement that no statement is valid, by the way. Nothing is true. Nothing has value. Um, People who are suffering from extreme levels of despair or um, deep, deep depression tend towards a very nihilistic perspective. Because life has no value. Life has no purpose. No meaning. It is completely empty and nihilism is the natural child natural child of naturalism it's actually the logical outcome of attempting to live naturalism consistently you see naturalism says humanity is part of a meaningless system but humanity has worth nihilism goes well how can humanity have worth when it's part of a meaningless system therefore life has no value therefore i have no value I believe in nothing. There is nothing. So I'm going to get my little um, volunteer if he can come across here. Usually I use Tori for this because she's about the same size as Joel. <laughs> Joel is going to get into the barrel. All the way down. That's right. Don't breathe too much. There we go. I'll leave him a little bit of air. <laughs> let me explain naturalism places us in a barrel our barrel is the closed system the universe that we live in the molecules right you can't transcend it because you're in it you're in the system but if you're in the system if you're in the barrel how do you know you're in a barrel how do you know what's on the outside of the barrel if all you ever have been is inside the barrel inside the system inside the universe You've got two options. Either you've got to get out of the barrel and have a look at the barrel, which we can't do. We can't transcend the system we're in and look at it from outside. Or you need someone who's outside the barrel and tell you what you're in. Christian theists would call that revelation because God is. Out. <laughs> you good? <Yeah. laughs> Christian theists would call this revelation because we have a God who is outside the system, he's transcendent. We are not. But Christian, the, uh, naturalists don't believe in a God outside the system. Everything is inside the system. There is nothing outside the barrel. So if I was to write something on this piece of paper, such as that, and this that I've just written on the page was outside the barrel, outside the system, Joel, I've just put something on a piece of paper in the bar- outside the barrel. Can you tell me what's on that piece of paper, please? A donkey, it is not a donkey. <laughs> I'll let you get out. You poor thing. You were close. No, you weren't. <laughs> you see my point. If you're in the system, you don't know what's outside the system. And so nat- n- people who were trying to live naturalism consistency- consistently consistently went, "I'm in the system, the system is all I know. I'm in this barrel. And my brain, which is made up of things within the system, thinks that there is nothing else apart from this barrel. But what if I'm wrong? I have no idea because I'm in a barrel. I can't get outside the barrel and go, oh, yes, it is a barrel. It might not be a barrel. It might be a computer. This could be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if anyone's read that. Everyone who hasn't is like, what? (laughs) So people who actually were logic thinkers and looked at this and went, this doesn't work. If we have no way of knowing if we're in a barrel, we have no way of even trusting our own thoughts. It's a sad place when you can't trust your own thinking. I'll put it this way. Some of you'll get this, some of you don't worry if you don't. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the movement of atoms in my brain and therefore have no greater meaning beyond the fact that they originate from the movement of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to believe that my I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And therefore, I have no reason for supposing that my brain is composed of atoms. See, this argument chases its tail. Right? I think this, but I can't trust my thinking. I don't think I can trust my thinking. But hang on, I can't trust the thought that I can't think my trust my thinking. Down you go in the spiral. So all of that to say, nihilists believe in nothing. They take naturalism to the next logical step where nothing exists, nothing has meaning, there is no validity to any thought or any statement or any truth. The reality is it's impossible to live nihilistically consistently. Those who attempt to live it end up losing their minds and are usually institutionalized. And so one of the great problems is that Nihilistic thought consistently hits up against our inbuilt sense of right and wrong. See, nihilistic thought says that no action is of any value. There is no right or wrong. There is no thought that even can be trusted. Nihilism says that we have no value and therefore there is no good and evil. Now, if that's correct, then murder is no different than watching the Wiggles because there is no good and evil. But of course we know that's not the case because we have this innate sense of right and wrong, which is why people, it's very, very rare for someone to be a consistent nihilist. However, the shades of nihilism, the lack of meaning, the lack of purpose have infused our culture. And our children are told every single day that they come from nothing, they live for no purpose, and they're going nowhere. It's nihilistic thinking, and then we wonder why they live like that. We wonder why they live like they have no purpose because they've been told it since day dot. And so the pushback against nihilism was was inevitable. It's infused our culture, but it's impossible to live consistently because people don't actually want to live without hope. It's a really dark place to live. But remember, each worldview is another step away from God. So here we are. We didn't want naturalism. We get to nihilism where nothing is real, nothing has value. But that's depressing. I don't want to live like that. Can I take a step back? No, I don't want to go back to closer to God. I like this place where I get to decide who I am. So I'm going to take a step away from nihilism, but I'm also going to take another step away from God, which brings us to existentialism. Big words tonight. There are two types of existentialism. One is atheistic and the other is theistic, and both of them are Horrific. Um, Atheistic existentialism, what it does, it's starting from naturalism and it wants to rise above nihilism. It recognises the nihilistic tendencies of naturalism and it goes, no, no, I don't want that, but I want to stick with the naturalistic thing. Existentialism actually came about, sort of, it came to its maturity at least in the mid-20th century. It started before that, but this is where it sort of came to its fore. After World War I... 1914 to 1918 people were very very disillusioned and felt very unsafe there had never been a war like the first world war they called it the great war and then you come to the 1920s and there's increased liberation for women there's a huge illegal drinking culture a huge stock market crash of 1929 then we go into the 30s with the great depression suicide rates skyrocketed people could literally not afford to feed their families and there's a universal lack of hope throughout the western world but it didn't get any better because at the end of the 30s, we then went into World War II. The Nazi power Party came to power in Germany, followed by World War II. And the general feeling by 1945, when the war finally ended, there had been 45 years of this, of despair and hopelessness, where life had simply felt like there was no purpose and no meaning. And in that moment, nihilism was actually rampant around the time because there had just been so many tragedies. People just had lost hope. And after 50 years of pain, people had had enough of hopelessness. And that was where existentialism came to the fore and became very significant by the 1950s. Now, the easiest way to understand atheistic existentialism is that it's naturalistic humanism. In other words, if we look at all those eight questions, which we won't go through them all now, atheistic existentialism agrees with most of the answers to naturalism. There's no God, there's no afterlife, history has no great purpose. But it differs when it comes to humans. It seeks to give humanity significance in a world without significance. It says the world is objective, the world is just a machine, but humans are subjective. We have emotions, we have consciousness, we are more, and therefore we have value. So in a world without value, humans have value. In a world without significance, humans have significance. In a world without meaning, we create our own meaning. So whatever you choose is the right choice. There's no value in the world unless I choose to put value on that thing or on that person. Whatever you choose is the right choice. doesn't matter what you chose. As long as you chose, that's what's important. Whatever you choose is right for you. Now again, this is a line we still hear today. Whatever's right for you. It's all very well until you think about someone like Hitler. I wouldn't say his choices were right for him or anyone, (laughs) right? But atheistic existentialism just quietly chooses to ignore the inconsistency. And at the heart of atheistic existentialism is the answer to question eight from our eight questions. What personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? And the answer... My core commitment is to myself. I'm the center of my universe. I have value in a valueless world, and that's all that matters. And that value that I've put on myself in a valueless world is what gives me hope. It's what pulls me out of nihilism. The other type of existentialism is called theistic existentialism, which sounds great, theistic. That's God. That, That should be good, right? No. No, no, no. So theistic existentialism was actually birthed in the 18th century in response to what was a pretty dead church at the time. It was really dead, okay? Um, Christianity was dry and very, very boring. And the outcome of this, the result of this, was two very different things happened. On the one hand were these amazing revivals that spread across the world. God's church was dead. And God woke it up with the Holy Spirit. You had people like John Wesley and George Whitfield preaching and massive salvations, move of the Holy Spirit. People are being saved, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, incredible revivals on one hand. And on the other hand was the birth of theistic existentialism. In a nutshell, this is Christianity that is all about me. So instead of God at the centre, And I live my life in obedience to him. Now I'm at the center and God exists to fulfill my needs. Sounds a little bit too familiar, right? And so when we answer our eight questions, theistic existentialism actually sounds a lot like Christian theism in the answers to a lot of them. However, everything is just slightly twisted to put the focus on me instead of God. In theistic existentialism, the miracles of the Bible didn't actually happen. They're just stories to teach me great life lessons. Theistic existentialists are the so-called Christians. um, Often you'll see ministers appear on the project. They're quite theistic existentialism (laughs) They'll say things like, oh, we don't have to take the Bible literally. They're just really good stories that help us get closer to God. Don't have to believe in the virgin birth or miracles, or the resurrection, or a literal creation. You know what? The Bible is really helpful to me to help me live a great life. But the power and the authority and the sovereignty of God is missing. And we've got to be very, very careful of this because it looks good. It sounds good. Even even when it comes to something like sin, sin is twisted just a little bit. So instead of me sinning and I fall short of what God has for me, When I sin, it's like, oh, I let myself down. I let others down. See, I'm always at the center of theistic existentialism. God is there to fulfill my needs instead of me there to glorify him. So we have to be very, very careful because a small lie mixed into truth can be more dangerous than an outright lie because it's harder to recognize. That brings us to our next worldview. Eastern pantheistic monism. Now, I am flying through tonight. I usually take about three weeks to do these these eight worldviews so we are flying through i'm happy to give everyone more information later or you can read the books um eastern pantheistic monism big words i can explain them later basically in the western world there's been a um a dissatisfaction with all the worldviews i've given you so far right they didn't like christian theism because of the whole god thing but all the others actually got inconsistencies that actually make it hard to live consistently there's contradictions inside them and people are like ah And they raise more questions than they answer. Add to this a little bit more history. So now, remember existentialism rose in the 50s. Then we come to the 60s. And in the 1960s, a whole bunch of things happened that actually made the young people in the West of that generation reject a whole lot of values of Western culture. The first thing they looked at was Western technology. Now, we think Western technology, we all think of our phones. But in the 60s, Western technology was modern warfare, mass murder on a huge scale. Prior to this, when you went to war, you went with a gun or there might have been a plane dropping a bomb in a section, but now we have incredibly huge levels of warfare on a mass scale. And you had the Vietnam War, which was the catalyst to this. The older older generation remembered the last war and went, you know what, sometimes there is a reason to go to war. Whereas the younger generation went, no, this is the first time we've actually faced war and there's never a good reason for war and so the young people were like we can't trust your reason and your logic and your your intellectual reasons for going to war we don't like it we don't trust it you've taken us to war we're the ones dying we don't like your decisions and so in the process they began to reject reason the second thing was western economics they looked at western economics and they went you know what there's a discrepancy between the rich and the poor they saw rich and powerful people oppressing the poor on a huge scale. And they went, we don't like this. And so they began to reject the Western system. And the third thing was Western religion. They looked at Western religion and went, well, we think that you're just supporting the system. We think there's corrupt corruption. We think there's hypocrisy. We think there's judgmental churches. And so they began to reject Western religion. So rejecting reason, rejecting the Western system and rejecting Western religion actually led to a tendency to reject Western thought altogether. And they began to look East. They began to get interested in Eastern philosophies and Eastern religion. Because Eastern thought doesn't actually idolise logic like Western thought does. It's quiet. It's non-threatening. It's a Dalai Lama. Its lifestyle is uncomplicated. Its religions are completely different from any Western religion. And it began to get very, very attractive to the young people in the 60s. With its thousands of years of history, Eastern tradition, with its meditating gurus and its simple life, seemed to have the answer for our longing for significance. And it was really appealing. So the most common, now there's a gazillion different Eastern philosophies, but the most common one is called Eastern pantheistic monism, which is Hinduism is, is, is involved in there and Buddhism is also loosely in that group, you could call it. So I'm just going to talk about that very, very briefly. The key to realize with the Eastern philosophy is that it doesn't have to make sense. In fact, that is not even a thing. Um, And so we can't use our eight questions because there are no logical answers to the questions. (laughs) Eastern philosophy rejects logic. It has no need for it. So I'm going to give you a nutshell of what Eastern pantheistic monism looks like. Number one, the soul of every human being is the soul of the cosmos. Um, This is the Hindu belief that Atman is Brahman. You may have heard of that before. If you haven't, don't worry. Basically what it means is the essence of any one person is exactly the same as the essence of the universe. We are all God. We are all universe. We are all one. Nothing exists that that is not God. If anything appears to exist that is not God, that's an illusion and doesn't really exist. Everything that is real is one with the oneness. There's no separate objects. There's no that rock or this tree or that person or you and me. We are all one because everything is Brahman. And this goes against rational Western thought where this is this. It's not that. You can't say a a rock is a tree. It's not. It's a rock. But Eastern thought is completely okay with not making sense. And so this really appealed to young people in the 60s who were rejecting Western thought. The second thing to note is that everything is one, but some things are more one than others. If anyone's read Animal Farm, you'll recognize that slight illusion there. Everything is one in reality, but some things bear the illusion of not yet being one with the one. I know you're all going to be going, what? Reality is determined by how one you are with the one. Now, you already are one with the one, but sometimes there's an illusion that makes you think that you're not one with the one, and so you want to become more one with the one, even though you already are one with the one, right? Got it? Number three, all roads lead to the one. Because you already are one, but all roads lead to the one. Um, You can chant a mantra. You can meditate on a mandala. You can be silent. You can just still be still. The goal is to be one with the one. Now, there's some little sub points here that you need to understand. To be one with the one is to move past personality. Now, what that means is it's not just my personality gets better. I mean, you move past it. You don't need personality anymore. You move past knowledge, you move past thought, you move past consciousness and past desire, and you simply be. There's no beliefs, there's no doctrines, because that's an illusion. You just be. Next thing to realize is there's no right or wrong, because that's an illusion. Just be. And the concept of karma you may have heard of is, is universally accepted in Eastern thought. And people go, oh, that's an idea of right and wrong. It's actually not. (laughs) The concept of karma is that my present situation, whether it's painful or happy, is a direct result of past actions in this life or in a previous life. And no soul in all of the cosmos ever passes out of existence. It may take centuries upon centuries upon centuries for this soul or this essence, this Atman, to find its way back to Brahman, the one, but no soul will ever not be or not exist because everything is one with the one however on your way to the one even though you're already one with one on your way to the one you have to pay for your actions along the way there is no forgiveness there's no redemption there's no absolution you must pay for what you've done so it sounds like eastern thought has a moral code like western thought does but it's actually quite different because you do good not to help others or do the right thing, but to earn good karma. But also, if someone's suffering and you help them, that may be good for you, but it actually may be bad for them. Because what they believe is that in helping that person, all they've done is delayed the karma. Because if they're suffering, it's because of their karma. They are going to suffer. If I relieve their suffering, well, they're just going to have to suffer later because they've not suffered now. So if you are doing good, it gives you good karma, it may actually not help someone else's karma. But having said all of that, also remember everything is good and nothing is good because Brahman is beyond good and beyond evil. There is no distinction between good and evil. Next point is there's no death. Death is an illusion. My personality is an illusion. And so when my personality, my meanness dies, my true self, a.k.a. my Atman, or my oneness, or my essence, simply becomes another person with a different personality. Because my personality is just an illusion. So when it dies, well, that's just an illusion. My true self, my oneness, just continues. Because it's eternal, and it's one with the one. Last bit with that is time is also not real. Time is also an illusion. Because to be one with the one is to pass beyond time. The goal is to realize my oneness with the one move past consciousness and just be. <laughs> it was actually really attractive for a certain point, period of time, but it's really hard for Westerners to get our head around. And, of course, we like our materialism and we like our dreams and we like having our desires and we like having our personalities and we like having our opinions. We don't actually want to drop them and just be. And so people went, okay, how can we, again, take another step, right? How can we seek Eastern philosophy but also keep everything we like about the West? How do we do that? And in the process, they created an entirely new worldview, which leads us to the next one on our little step across the stage, which is the New Age. This will probably be our last one tonight because I'm going to run out of time. New Age. So the New Age is basically the search for Eastern meaning without leaving the comforts of the West and with a fair bit of paganism thrown in just for fun. So it's kind of Eastern thought, paganism, and materialism. It's pretty much how you describe it. So it takes elements of naturalism, such as evolution, to new heights. Because New Age doesn't just believe that we evolve physically, also believes that we evolve in our consciousness. We evolve to a higher consciousness. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but the key things to remember is this. The answer to question number one, what is prime reality? The answer is the self. Prime reality is the self. The soul or the essence of every person is the center of the universe. The self is king. At last, we're being honest about it. We are our own God. We've been our own God ever since we moved away from Christian theism, but now we're at least saying it. And our job in New Age is to discover our God likeness, to reach our higher consciousness. And there's a whole lot of different ways you can do this. And there's a million, you know, I read somewhere that trying to pin down the New Age is like trying to pin jelly, jelly to a wall. It's, it can't do it. So there's a multiple different ways people do this within the New Age, which I won't go into tonight. But often spiritual beings are very important in this journey. So they might be called spirit guides or angels or helpers, but they help us discover our true selves, our God consciousness, because we are all gods. We just haven't realized it yet. And if we can just realize it, then we can attain that. We can live that. Now, New Age doesn't actually try to answer its inconsistencies. It just completely ignores them. It doesn't matter. Um, Ethics are also not an issue because everything is centered around me and so therefore whatever I want is fine. If self is satisfied, that's enough. And so... As we've taken step after step from God, from Christian theism to deism to naturalism to nihilism, existentialism, and so on, finally in the New Age we've done it. In seeking to remove God from the equation, we've made ourselves gods. There's one final worldview I want to talk about, but I'm going to actually leave it for next week. I don't want to go over time, but it's probably the one that's the most pervasive. And every single one of us in this room are affected by this particular worldview because this is the worldview of the culture that we've grown up in. And it's called postmodernism. And I will leave that for next week. So let me just say this. Romans 12 verse 2. We need to make sure that our worldview is based on the Word of God. Romans 12 2 in the new 2 in the NLT says... Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. We've got to be Christians with hearts that melt with compassion, but with backbones of steel. We need to be unable to be manipulated, unable to be bribed, unable to be deterred strong, but never losing the gentleness and the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Jesus. We've got to have a rock-solid allegiance to Jesus above all. The statement Jesus is Lord is our allegiance. It's our confession. It's our authority. It's our standard. It's the rule that we live by, regardless of the society that we live in, regardless of what the cult is doing. Jesus is Lord is what? We bow to. And so next week, I'll talk about postmodernism, and then we're going to talk about what's changed in the last couple of years, what has shifted in the last few years to get us to where we're at today. But for now, let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you. You are Lord. I thank you that you have said, God, that you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail And we thank you for that, Lord God. And we want to be those who stand strong for you and for your kingdom in these times. And God, I pray you'd give us wisdom. I pray you'd give us grace. Father God, to serve you, to follow you, and to lead others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.